Hi, plant friends. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. This is Simon Hill, your host and creator of plantproof.com, your one-stop shop for information on plant-based nutrition. The Plant Proof Podcast is a channel to create thought-provoking conversation with industry leaders, qualified professionals, athletes, and more to help us become more conscious and form healthier and more mindful habits. And now it's time to introduce today's special guest. This week's guest on the Plant Proof Podcast is Chef Derek Sano. You may have seen Derek's amazingly beautiful food creations on Instagram. He is one half of the Wicked Healthy team, along with his brother, Chad Sano. And in this podcast, Derek, you know, very kindly invited me over to his house to cook for me and put on a huge spread of food. Certainly lived up to the expectations that I had from from looking at the food that he posts. And I could really, really tell he's just so passionate about cooking. It really is a passion for him. It's not a job. And I think that will come through whilst listening to this episode. What's really interesting about Derek is his story is unlike any other chef story that I've heard or, or read about. It's a story that has tremendous highs. And, you know, it's a guy that's worked at Whole Foods. It's a guy that's worked at Tesco and, and helped shape how these companies choose and sell plant-based foods. You know, he has an incredibly, incredibly top job. A lot of weight on his shoulders in terms of shaping this market. This success has not come without some, some terribly, terribly sad lows. And you'll hear about those in this episode. And, you know, it was really, really raw. And, you know, there was tears. It was tears from me. And it's just a real conversation between two guys who talk about compassion. And I think that's the underlying theme in this episode is choosing compassion above all else. I, I really hope you, you like this episode. I think we took it to, to a really special place. I think there's some really great learnings from it particularly around Derek's time that he spent living with Tibetan monks, Buddhist monks, and at a monastery and and how that shaped him and changed his values and, and how that's helped him deal with, you know, tremendous lows that he has experienced. So, you know, sit back and I really, really hope that you enjoyed this episode. But but most of all I hope that it gives you some knowledge, some tips, and things that you can implement into your life at a practical level, which help you become a more conscious, mindful, thoughtful, and happy person. Chef Derek Sano, it is my absolute pleasure to have you on the Plant Proof Podcast this afternoon in a very, very warm London. That's right. (laughs) Thanks. It's really nice to be here and super nice to meet you, Simon. So, I mean, our, our listeners no doubt have, have seen your delicious food photography and, and meals that you create on social media and, and probably familiar with the Wicked Healthy cookbook. Mm. No doubt you have gone through a tremendous uh, amount of cooking over the years and in order to, to, to create such a craft and I'd love to to jump back to the beginning. Sure. So as a as a child, where where were you born and, and where were you raised? So I was born and with my two other brothers. Uh, yeah, they came after me. I'm the <laughs> old, I'm the oldest. A lot of people guess they try to guess who's older lately, which is fun when you get to a certain age. 
we all look the same. Yeah. <laughs> so we were born just outside of Boston, kind of grew up a little bit in Lowell, Massachusetts when I was younger. And then um, my family bounced around a lot, moved around, and then ended up going through my grade school and high school years in New Hampshire. And, and as a as a family in terms of, I guess, your hobbies and values and, and just, you know, general typical diet, were you a, would you say you were a typical family of that area? Yeah, yeah, totally typical. I was big into seafood. We lived on the seacoast. Um, I wasn't vegan growing up. I've, only, I've been vegan the past two years. When did you really discover a, a love? I'm presuming you obviously have a love for food. You know, we've spoken off air and I can see it through mm. what, you, what you're doing. When did you discover that love and, and realize that, you know, I, I need to work with food? I'd say I discovered that I love food probably before I reached my teens as far as like wanting to work with it and play with it and cook. But I didn't realize that I was going to hone this craft until my 20s. Okay. And and as a 20-year-old, what was sort of the the entry point to that realization? I worked in this really busy restaurant and the the head chef, he was just this large very large man and he was a drill sergeant before he became a chef so you can imagine this guy was just massively huge huge loud loud voice and he would scream and yell at some of the other guys that I worked with but he would never yell at me and he pulled me aside one day and he he did raise his voice but it was in such a way that he was telling me that I he's like Derek it's taken me 10 years to learn what you can do in like a small amount of time. You have to follow the recipes on the menu though, because you keep changing them and people keep asking why it's different than the last time they came in. <laughs> Whether it's better or not has nothing to do with it. He's like, you can do whatever you want with the specials menu, but the standard menu, unless you're going to work every single day, you have to, uh, you have to follow the recipes and do it the way we set up. So you were sort of taking it upon yourself to bring your creativity into yeah. those meals. Yeah, kind of, because I was getting bored with the regular everyday stuff and it didn't taste that great to me. So I wanted to make it taste better. <laughs> Did you take his advice and go back to just pushing out the, the standard item meals per the, the recipe? Yeah, I, I did. And then I also got into designing the menu in the beginning of it. So he included me with that. It was just a really good, he, the way he... He told me I was creative. He built, helped build me up and he helped me like realize that I was good at what I was doing. So you, you, you had that experience and how long did that last before you, you moved on to next project? That lasted about four years. So I learned, I started as a line cook and then ended up as the chef of that restaurant and then just moved on. I had continually just moved from restaurant to restaurant, um, working throughout the years until my late 20s. So it wasn't that long before I opened my own place. Okay. And all of those places where you were sort of cutting your teeth, so to speak, and learning, I'm presuming, what, you know, what flavors work with what flavors and yeah. also getting feedback from customers, no doubt. Um, were, the, were all of those restaurants in the same area or were you bouncing around? I bounced around. I worked off the coast of Bar Harbor, Maine. I worked down in New Hampshire. I worked out in Wyoming. Um, I bounced around a little bit here and there. And what I did was I practiced the basics a lot, like just cutting, roasting, sauteing, grilling. Like I just wanted to get 
be really good at, at the methods and processes. And you, you just mentioned that you got to a point in, in terms of working for other other people, other business owners, to where you felt, I guess, confident enough to go out on your own. Mm-hmm. And where where was that? And what type of food establishment did you open? That was in on the seacoast of New Hampshire, um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And what I did was, I ended up leaving this one position, and I was a sous chef at it. And I went. I knew I was going to open a restaurant. So what I did was I got a job as a produce delivery guy for a produce company so I could learn more about how every single restaurant worked. So I knew how to work in a restaurant, but I wanted access to see everything. So I took it upon myself to just get a job for six months and I delivered produce. So I went inside the back door of every restaurant to see who was clean, who has had recipe books open, what chefs were doing, organization, I got to see everything, what to and what not to do and who I wanted to ask questions about, you know, like how for advice and who I wouldn't ask questions. <laughs> so it was a really good experience. You know, I'm, I found that, you know, I went to college, uh, university just for a very small bit. I didn't like it. I, I know about myself that I'm not a classroom learner, I'm not a group learner with a bunch of people. You know, everybody, I've learned that in group learning situations, people tend to follow other people, right? I tend to go the other way. It just happens all my life. If it gets to a point where everybody's like, oh no, we're doing this, we're doing this, forget that. I say, well, forget that. I'm going over here and I'm going to do this. It's just how it is still. So, I mean, that would have been, it sounds like a fantastic opportunity, the perfect opportunity for someone who's going to take the risk and set up their own business. Can you, can you, Go back and, and in your mind, remember, I guess, what were some of the, the biggest things that you learned and you're like, okay, I need to emulate that or build on that and I need to uh, maybe perhaps avoid this. Can you remember what some of those were? It's funny because I have this belief that one, if you do every single thing in front of you really well in succession, it just builds on this, everything being done really well. And I apply that through food, through process, through washing dishes, like washing dishes, every single plate. If you can wash each one really well and just get faster and faster and faster, pretty soon you're really good and you master that. So I did that with chopping onions, cutting, you know, to the point where I could blindfold myself and, and do a 50 pound bag of onions in front of me, blindfolded and knowing like how to hold your hand, you know, much like you... You're very in shape, right? So like, you know how it's like a consistent every day mm-hmm. going to the gym. And that, that's what builds over a period of time. You can't just go to the gym and all of a sudden be super good. So super huge, henched, whatever they say here. Um, same with cooking. You know, you practice and practice a little bit every day. It's like hold, the way you hold an, a, your hand when you're chopping, you learn your lessons. If you hold it wrong, you get cut. And if you're not aware, you get cut. So it's like bringing that mindfulness to every single thing you do that's in front of you and then building upon that. And that's how, that's how I got to be where I am. And as far as not things, knowing what not to do, I know that I need to trust my intuition. And the times that I don't trust it is when I get fucked up. I don't know if I, can I swear on this? Go one's ahead. Time? Okay, cool. <laughs> so... So those times that I haven't trusted my intuition is when things might 
go off track or not really do the best at what I what what's good for me. And the the first the first place you set up, what was that called? The first place I set up, it was called Mahalo's. Mahalo's catering. So my my other brother, Darren, he lives in Maui, and we I would visit him quite a bit. And um, Mahalo, they said thank you all the time. That's what Mahalo means. So I just threw an S on it, and I really liked it, and kind of resonated. And were, were the um, ingredients and meals Hawaiian inspired? Uh, no, or no, no, no. I I don't. One thing about my style of cooking, I call it like a freestyle. Freestyle. Yeah, it's just I like to cook whatever tastes good. Is that similar to a fusion, I guess? Yeah, I guess yeah. you could say a fusion, right? I really am attracted to Pan-Asian flavors, like very much attracted to Chinese foods, Korean foods, Japanese foods. Like those are my favorite flavors. And then also, but knowing I grew up in New England and Maine, barbecues and lived in Austin, Texas, I, I get all those other flavors. It's just combining them all, you know? And later in the podcast, when we jump more into, you know, you transition to cooking just with plants, I think it'll be mm. interesting to come back to looking back at, you know, a, a big part of your childhood in terms yeah. of barbecue and how you were able to redo it with yeah. plants and create the same experience. Yeah. Um, I'm sure people will find that really cool. Mm. So the, so Mahalo's, you open that up and was it everything that you had expected and more and, and where did where did that business go? It's funny, man, because I started Mahalo's the same the same year that I had my son. Um, so I was married quickly, briefly. Um, had my son and Jake, who's amazing. He's nineteen now. Nineteen, right? So that was a long time. It feels he's like grown up. Time. he's grown up. He's bigger than me. <laughs> um, and so starting a business and having a baby is difficult. Mm. And I ended up choosing having the business, you know, and Jake, he grew up when he was with me in the restaurants. So that what I started was a personal chef service at first. And from there, it just grew and grew and grew to where I ended up hiring some of the old guys that I worked with um, that I really respected and I learned from. And they came and worked with me. And I had that business for about seven years. Within that business, I opened up another restaurant called the 100 Club. And that was more of a high-end restaurant where we had wine, cigars. It was a private supper club. We charged uh, an initiation fee and a yearly fee to be a member of it. And then I ended up selling those too and started a farm. So I had a vegan organic farm. So there was no meat on it, no animal products. And it wasn't because I was vegan at the time. My brother was vegan, Chad. He's been vegan since he was in high school. And I'm six years older than him. So I didn't really have know him when he was a, in, in his schools. I was out working yeah. and doing stuff already. So he, he, he made the decision in, in high school to change yeah. to a vegan diet. He did because he had really bad asthma and somebody had suggested to stop Jews and dairy or having dairy in his diet and as soon as he did that cleared up yeah and he didn't go because he was going to the hospitals a lot you hear that a lot and he had asthma yeah or the inhaler things you know and and he took it to really the extreme where he went like raw vegan and he traveled around and the US and hitchhiked and like I would call him a hippie I'd still call him a hippie today so He's, he's not so much, but I still like to make fun. Oh, I was actually, I was going to ask what he was up to while you were doing all this. So that's, it's interesting to, to note that he transitioned first to a vegan diet, but it sounds like it was more for a, a health yes. um, perspective at the start anyway. Yeah, at the start, yeah. 
So I'm assuming like from your end, you were thinking, oh, he needs to do that for his health and, yeah. and just sort of you continued on with what you were doing, yeah. which, you know, at the time was no doubt Cooking. normal. Yeah, yeah. And, and eating normal food. Yeah, exactly. No, whatever the normal is. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the, the definition's slightly changing, I think. Over the exactly. exactly. Um, or it means something different to everyone. So um, you sold those two businesses mm-hmm. and what was what was next? Did so then we ended up starting... We, oh, sorry, you started the farm. Yep, we got the farm. And uh, the reason for the farm is I wanted to learn where everything I was cooking came from and how it got there and growing. So... I had read a book called The Good Life um, by Helen and Scott Nearing, and they grew up and they, they were homesteaders from the 1920s and 30s. And they had built two different farms, starting like when I believe the guy's first one was 50, and then the second time he did it when he was 70. He lived till he was 100, where he just took a piece of property and just totally transformed the whole property, built it from the ground up, farms, every, I mean, it's, Incredible. So incredible. Like I'm so inspired by them. And they had their own way of health and there was no animal products. There was no animal eating. Every step of the way I learned and it kind of slowly sunk into me. It was like planting the seed. Yeah, everything, you know. Your brother and then the farm and Yeah. Yeah. It all it all started happening like like that in succession. And at that time, well, I'm presuming because you were cooking, you were cooking with plants. So mm. no doubt what you were eating, your diet, had it started to shift in? No. Not really. No, man. I cooked so, a lot of meat. Like, we haven't, like I cooked a lot of meat. I was doing pig roast. I was doing steaks. I considered vegetables a condiment and meat the focus. I think that's pretty much what most people do. Yeah. It's like yeah. the star of the plate Wasn't, is the meat. It's an animal product. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I remember myself. Uh, coming home from work or the gym or whatnot, and if I was yeah. speaking with my girlfriend or my mum, it was, "What are we having for dinner tonight?" And yeah. it, you'd say, "Chicken yeah. or steak." There, yeah, was, yeah. there was no regard there was for no, anything no. else. Yeah, Whatever exactly. else was there was just like a little Second. mini side. Yeah, um, but the star was the animal product. Yeah, so true. Yeah, and so th- from the from the farm um, or from cooking all this meat, how how did you end up? becoming a plant-based chef like well, you know what, what was what inspired the change so from the farm uh during the farm i think that was 2000 2003 2004 so i had met who was going to be my fiance amanda and she at the time was doing training horses and teaching horses how to do dressage. And I just started learning about all about this from her. Um, she was an amazing uh, model as well. Super beautiful and super kind. And we got along really well. And we transitioned from that farm. I ended up opening another restaurant. And she helped. I, for the first time, like found somebody who could relate to me because I'm, I'm a little... Uh, some people think I'm a little crazy <laughs> because I like work. Uh, you know, when people ask me, hey, what's your hobby? Uh, cooking. And what do you do for work? Cook. So I consistently, I just am cooking like all the time for fun. Like if you didn't come over, I would have made all this food anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're super passionate about it. So it's yeah. not like you're being forced. It's, no, I'm not being forced. You're loving it. I love it. Yeah. I love it. But people don't understand that. that. Yeah. 
It's just like, that's what I do. If for some reason shit just comes through me and it goes through food and it's really weird. Creative outlet. It's just weird. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's wonderful and weird. <laughs> um, so for how I got into plant-based. So, you know, to make a really brief, I'll just be really brief about it. Amanda and I got engaged. She was killed shortly after in a car accident. She was hit head on by a 17 year old boy going to a swim class or something. It was like really, really early. And then from there, like I kind of lost my shit. So I didn't mm. like, you know, when you, you're that young, I was in my mid thirties. She was a little bit younger than me. And you're living with somebody and you, somebody that you like do everything with and share a bed with and you're going to marry you know, I've lost other people in my life. I've lost my sister. I've lost my uncles and cousins and grandparents. I've lost a lot of people. I've lost my best friend. It's different when you lose it, your mate. Yeah, your, I'm, your, I'm so sorry your to, partner. to to hear that. Thanks, man. It's, it's been it's, yeah. I don't I don't know what to say other than you know. Thank you for having the strength to yeah, share yeah. that. It's um. It, what happened after that is like I, I've always been into Buddhism. I Bruce Lee is my main, my idol, role model, however you want to say. It. Like that guy, he he kind of got me thinking that way. I was raised Catholic. wasn't really into the the whole. I wasn't into it. I couldn't see why people would hurt other people and why all these fighting and just you know I don't believe that any. Any pure religion does not promote violence. So it just gets fucked up by people and yeah. egos. I know. I've been, um, before I was here, I was in mm. Israel. Yeah. And, you know, you feel, you feel the energy, you know, visiting yeah, Jerusalem yeah. and you just think the world will be a better place if mm. everyone was compassionate to everyone else. Yeah, that's, a, that's it. You you know, know, the, animals, humans, everyone. Yeah, everything. When that happened and Amanda was, killed I had been catering for um, Dan Brown who wrote The Da Vinci Code Angel and Demon I mentioned this this short brief bit in the book you know it's very short he's a very very famous author so yeah I'm sure most yeah, people yeah. listening would have heard of him and if you haven't get a copy of The Da Vinci Code so yeah it's a great <laughs> book I mean it's, it's just a great he's a great writer and his, the movies were great with Tom Hanks so we did the catered the premieres of those movies and I, at the time, was um, their personal chef, like catering all their parties. And he, I had an event two weeks after Amanda died uh, at his house. And he wanted to cancel the event. And I was like, no, please don't, because it's the only thing I have to look forward to. Like at that, after she passed, I had thing I could only see as far as that party. Yeah. To like, okay, be, stay, stay sane to do that party. Well, you can't, you can't prepare for an event. Like that, you know, it's no. so tragic. So, so tra that was yeah. part of your cathartic, I guess, yeah, yeah. You know, therapeutic approach. Well, it, you know, I'm not going to lie. I took like any drug that anybody would give me to numb the pain and just to get Escape. me through. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Because it, to be honest with you, I could not bear the thought of how much pain she went through before she passed. I just couldn't deal with yeah. it. So I showed up at the hospital three hours. It was, she, from the time of that accident to the time I showed up at the hospital was three hours. 
and she had passed 10 minutes before I showed up. So it was really difficult. And I'm, I'm tearing up here just uh, listening. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's been incredibly sad. 11, it'll be 11 years this July. <laughs> so that, I mean, it just completely changed my life. So Dan Brown, we'll get back to that. He gave me the name and number of a Buddhist monastery about five hours away called Padme Samyaling. And it was a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. And he's like, Derek, you should just go there and check it out and just take the weekend and just relax, you know? So I took his advice. I called them up, said I was coming. And they, I ended up going there for the weekend. Long story short, I ended up moving there. I ended up selling everything I had. Um, ended up selling the restaurant, the other restaurant, which was called Mizuna, to my partners there. And then just stayed there. And then I would come back once a month to, we had decided, me and uh, Amanda's family had decided to forgive the, the boy that caused the accident because it was his fault and to forgive him so I, I came back to defend him so he wouldn't go to jail and through all the courts so my first public appearance in speaking to anybody was in a courtroom which was very difficult probably the most difficult in my life Is, so do you, do you look back on that and I mean that's an incredible amount of compassion to show that um, as a as a I mean was it the going to the monastery that gave you that yes. outlook Yes, I don't think I would have done it. Because in the beginning, like even the day that it happened when she was hit, I was calling their house, you know, and the mm. co- the, I had visits from the police. Like, hey, I have to leave these people alone. Because I was just calling, like, you know what you did? Do you know what you freaking did? Um, you kind of ruined not only my life, but family's lives around, you know? And so by going to the monastery, though, I... I've already had been reading about compassion and Buddhism. And the thing is about Buddhism, right? In the beginning, when I first started studying it, it seems like it talks a lot about suffering. And I had to put the books down because I didn't understand the whole suffering. But like it always talks about suffering and life is suffering. This is suffering. And I just didn't realize that it was just pointing out that that's the case. And it is true. Like a lot of life is suffering. A lot of life is happiness. And it's just like what the Tibetan teachers, the Kempos, what they mainly taught me is like, just be nice to people, be compassionate like that, and cultivate compassion. And that takes practice. It's not like you're not just born with it. You have to like be mindful about it and you have to choose to be that way. So I chose to forgive that boy because it wasn't any good for me to keep perpetuating the the suffering of like why should I ruin their family when this had already happened you know and there was nothing we could do there's nothing I could do about it so yeah I don't know where I'm going with it but but I mean that was it sounds like that was a bit of closure almost it, on for, for in terms of dealing with the other side of the party and the court yeah, case yeah. and stuff there was, you know, he never apologized for that. He still hasn't. His lawyers advised against it. And I, we had to actually prolong the courts because the judge was, I just remember the judge asking the boy, why you haven't apologized to pointing at me and say, why haven't you apologized to this young man? 
And the, the lawyers were like, you know, no, whatever they said, no contest, no word. That they didn't to, want him to sort of admit to anything. Right. They, and the judge was, he's like, look, I'm extending this another month. You guys have to think about this. Apologizing to me is not an admission of guilt. Any human being that walks up to somebody and somebody, something bad happens, you say you're sorry. That's right. It's like a show of compassion. And you are not doing that. So the lawyer's advice is not correct at this moment. So it's just like the fact. Mm. Incredible that even out of court, that that didn't take place. Yeah, no. No. And still. Maybe one day. Yeah, maybe someday. But I'm not counting on it. So from there, I just really, for those three years, so I lived there for three years, um, close to three years anyways. And what happened was I just studied I've read tons and tons of books about Tibetan Buddhism. I read all about the compassion. I attended all the teachings. I cooked for all the meals. I started, I just started bringing myself back from being really silent and quiet from when I was super grieving. I've done a lot of silent retreats, the 30-day silent retreats there. And I wrote a lot. And I just practiced compassion and like how, and really like, malas and sitting and really sitting with my mind because what I wanted to do was figure out instead of running off, you know, people get pissed at this and pissed at that. And I do get pissed, but it's having that awareness of knowing the one thing that, that can take over and just cure everything rather than just getting pissed off at every single thing. I just want to know how my mind reacts to anything whether it's happiness or sadness. So I really try to play a role where I'm very equal. Like some people, I'm not the best at receiving gifts because I don't show enough excitement. But I'm also, when shit happens, I'm not the one who freaks out. This is learned from the... This is learned. Yeah. This is just learned from how my mind reacts and just sitting with it. and So it's sort of taking a back seat, watching everything. Watching everything. Yeah. Yeah. And what am I going to plug into? You know, I have that choice. And it's just, it's also given me a sense of confidence that it's okay. Everything at the end of the day is going to be okay. Is that everything? Is, it, is that sort of, I guess, detaching yourself from your thoughts? Is that part of Buddhism or is that just something that you started to realize when you were, you know, studying other aspects of Buddhism? Um, I think it's part of the, the Buddhist. You know, I'm not a teacher, so I can't. I don't want to be quoted on any of that stuff. You know, I'd, I'd say go to a real teacher who knows. Derek Sana says, yeah, yeah, this no, is how to be a Buddhist. No, I just, you know, I just, having no thought and detaching from your thoughts doesn't mean you're not compassionate. It just means you're aware. Like you can, if somebody came and did something super negative, like I don't have to react. Um, I do still react and it takes me a while to like, oh, okay, remember what, remember yeah. where you are because you're always going, you know, and shit happens and you can react instinctual. And I, I'm not always the best when I do that. So my best self comes when I have a moment to like reflect on it and think about it. And the more and more I practice that, then the easier and easier it gets. So how somebody, people ask me about meditating all the time and we'll, the best explanation I've heard is like when you sit and you quiet your mind and you know you can start recognizing your thoughts because you're not your thoughts, that space between one thought and another, that space when you're sitting and you're calm and you're peaceful starts to expand 
and that gap grows. And the more and more that grows, the more and more aware you can be of every thought. So slowing, slowing everything down. Yeah. And just being like sitting at a movie screen and just watching things go by. And then you don't have to, like, I don't have to, if I get upset and pissed off, or if I feel like self-loathing or self-deprecate or just something like bad and I feel like I'm sorry for myself, I'll set a time limit on that. Like, all right, you know what, Derek, allow you, I'll allow yourself, myself to be sad for this length of time, whether it's a day, if I wake up tomorrow, no more, no more. You get back, get your shit together and you get back out there and you do it because you're no, of no help to anybody like this, you know, if I'm in a negative state. That's pretty much how I live my life now. So it's sort of identifying that it's negative, negativity or sadness yeah. and not being too harsh on yourself, letting, yeah. I mean, letting yourself feel that because it's yeah. no doubt normal. But, and same goes with happiness though, yeah. or um, success. Like, oh, this happens all of a sudden. Because uh, lately you've been experiencing a, good, a fair amount of success with the range and like, it's still not where I want it to be, but it's, it's all these small steps and I allow myself to celebrate the success for a short amount of time, but then get back to work. Like don't, don't let it go to your head. It's all about, it's the ego and you, it can be happy or sad. It's like, I want to be in the middle. If that makes any that sense. That makes a hell of a lot of sense. It's, uh, I guess it's, that, that is a craft in itself, that level mm. of discipline to, I mean, you got you're everyone's going to be more productive if they're, less affected by these and having the big ups and downs. Right. So you mentioned there was 30 days of silence and that, yeah. that really interests me. Um, how does that work? You, you don't talk for 30 days. Correct. That, yeah. The first time you did that, was that challenging? And is there other students? Oh yeah. yeah. So it averaged, uh, so I've done five and a half of them and it averaged 30 to 40 people. And how it, like a typical day was, because I would like to take the role of cooking whenever those silent retreats were happening. So a typical day was, uh, I would get up at 4.30 or 5 and sit until breakfast. So 4.35 and then I would go sit until like 6 or 7 and then go prep up for breakfast, which was usually oatmeal, fruit. Um, so that was all vegan, vegetarian. And then I would serve breakfast and then I would do a little prep because teachings were always at 10. They were from 10 to 12. So I would do prep and get dinner or lunch set up. And so I would go to the teaching. I would come back at 12. I would put out lunch because I had set it up beforehand. Um, and then I would prep again for two hours. And then there was an afternoon teaching, usually from like 3 to 4.30ish. And I, so I would prep that time between then 12 and 3 or to, yeah, 12 and 3, and then go to that other teaching and then come back, have a short window to prep up for dinner and then do the evening practice. And then I would either have people help me um, chop veg, this or that, and have it ready for the next day so I could prep again. So that was 30 days and it was just no talking. The only talking was like utilitarian talk. So like, don't touch that because it's hot as fuck. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? so, a warning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But otherwise, there is no chit-chat. So if you're wanting someone to chop something or, um, I guess, structuring up the menu and stuff, how, how are we communicating that? Um, I would write down a prep list for everybody. And then if I needed to, I would show people how I wanted it. And is, is the idea that 
not letting any other words and um, noise into your mind allows you to get deeper into your own thoughts. Yeah, is that and it? the practice. And the practice. Right. So right. during the, the learnings that you talked about, you said mm. it was, I think, two or three. Teachings, yeah. Teachings, three, yeah. three learnings maybe? Across yeah, the- so he, we, so I think the teachings were, they average around four days of, four days out of the week. And then that other time, if there wasn't a teaching, it was just sitting in group meditation and practicing. So in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a lot of um, mantras and a lot of practice like chanting and um, yeah, it's just pr- and, practice. And during the teaching is the, sorry, we're going a little bit down a, yeah, rabbit, hole, uh, a rabbit hole, but I find it very interesting. Mm-hmm. The During the teaching is the um, teacher are they are they talking or how are they? Yes, yeah, yes. So they're they're reading like Tibetan. So f- when the my teachers are amazing, amazing, like so much respect and love for these guys. They escape Tibet, and they my teachers the Kempos, so Kenshin Paladin and Kempo Sewang. They held the lineage Enigma lineage. So there's four lineages in Tibetan Buddhism. And they held one that the, he would, they, I don't know what that means, but they like, they, they were the top of that. Okay. So they helped bring and teach the Dalai Lama about that. So when the Tibetans escaped Tibet, the Dalai Lama wanted to make sure all the, the whole Tibetan Buddhism was preserved. So he is from a different lineage and he called upon all the heads of the other lineages to teach him to save, you know, save it because he was the head of the country and the religious state there. So I was super lucky. Very authentic. Very highly skilled. Oh my God. Like I can't even explain. I get goosebumps thinking about these guys because they are the perfect role models and the kindest people I've ever, ever experienced. You know, I got to cook for uh, the Karmapa, who is like the 17th Karmapa. So he is the second. So I guess if the Dalai Lama had passed, he would be one of the one of the people in charge. And so there was just these, he was amazing. I slept in a storeroom at a monastery who that was ending a three-year retreat, three years these monks were in and I got to go. They asked me to go and cook for them. So there's 50 of them and then all their families came and the Kamapo came to speak. So this was at KTD in upstate New York. So it was like two hours away from where I was. And I got permission to go do that. And I slept in a storeroom the night before on the floor so I could cook for these monks. And it was super, um, it, I just will never forget it because I cooked all this food and it was just all vegan vegetarian style. And the Karmapa came into the kitchen to say thank you to me and left the bodyguards because he has an entourage of like people and just literally stepped in the kitchen all by himself with me. And it was just so, uh, humbling. Oh my God. It was amazing. Like I can't even explain. Like that to me was more important than a lot of things in my life. And what was, what was the setting like? During all of this practice, so where where was it sort of positioned in nature? Or? Yeah, it's in a it's on five hundred yeah five hundred uh, acres of property in upstate New York. It's just beautiful, rolling rolling hills, and the, it was like a monastery built from Tibetan style, like they had. And there was a sangha house where we did all the cooking, and then dormitory rooms. Um, you know, you if you had your own room, it wasn't much 
bigger than this room that we're in right now, which is not too big. You know, it's a, a small dining five, room. Five, six meters by three meters yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah. Or you slept in bunk beds and shared. So I did a lot of that. You know, there's a, there are days that, you know, heck, I wanted my own space. You know, I have a Westphalia, a van that, VW bus, you know, so I would sometimes just go sleep in that. Yeah. Outside. You still got that? Yeah, I still have that. Yeah. It's in Oregon right now. But a little bus in, in Australia as well. It's a, yeah, I love this thing. It's so much fun just well, to escape. Yes. It's, <laughs> I call it my backup plan. Yeah. Because <laughs> I could literally live in that thing. <laughs> okay. So we'll um, slightly bring things back on track. I could mm. talk about that and Buddhism for hours because yeah, it's super interesting, something that I want to explore myself. Mm. So I'm I'm going to sort of slightly assume here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the first time you went and um, you were practicing there and you did mm. um, 30 days of silence, I think mm. the first time, yeah. was that process enough to sort of get you away from, you mentioned, you know, taking any drugs and yeah, yeah. things, substance abuse to numb the pain. Yeah. Was that enough to clear your mind and get you out of that mind frame and onto um, a positive trajectory? The, just the, it wasn't just the 30 days that did that. It was just being in that space around people who were super supportive. So I decided when I had moved there, so it was only 29 days after Amanda passed that I ended up going there. And during that 29 days before I went there, like that was when I could have died. Things were going down. Doing so much. Yeah. Doing so many drugs and just wasn't treating myself good. Friends would, and family must have been yeah, incredibly were, concerned. Yeah, they were pretty. You know, I went out. I went out and bought a fucking motorcycle, a Ducati One Thousand Monster, with the sole intention of driving that fucking thing into a truck, coming head on. Like that's why I got it. Um, I obviously did not do that. Things smartened up in me, and you know, there was one instance that. I ended up taking all these drugs and all these pills and putting them in a blender, blended them up with rum and drinking that and then not waking up for a while. But when I woke up, I was, I woke up and I had been throwing up all over my kitchen floor. It was just kind of disgusting. And but something, when I woke up, something said, it's not your time. Like you have, you're going to have an effect on things and you need to use this. It was really weird. And I don't know how to even talk about it because I don't know if I believe in hocus pocus kind of things like that, but it's just what happened. And I said, all right, well, fuck it. Then I have to do all this other stuff, you know? So I went to the monastery. They only did vegan and vegetarian food. What I saw there was like, it was a communal kind of cooking situation and not, there was no professional chefs there. And so I took it upon myself to just, look, this is what I can do. I can cook. So I just started cooking for people. It was a way that I could give back. And I started cooking more and more. And then I just wanted to keep cooking again because that's how, it's just a natural thing for me. And then I saw that it benefits people. Like, And I remember the Kempo saying, you know, it's so important to have a nourished body so your mind can absorb the teachings. Like if you need a healthy body to absorb everything else. And so you can have a good, be a benefit to other people. And you, you're, the way you do things affects everybody. If you see the power that you have, what you do affects everything. You know, the whole cause and effect kind of thing. So 
I really took that upon myself and took it to heart. Like that was my ability and what I could do to benefit other people. And I joke about it because I say, well, damn it, everybody, they all, the Buddhists tricked me. They tricked me because I was helping everybody else and that helped me. So yeah. that's how I ended up getting well enough to, you know, live they, there. And they could probably see the the happiness you were getting or the joy out of cooking. Right. And identified that. It's funny how um the vegan thing, which initially would have been like a bit of a weird thing when your brother went vegan, yeah, yeah. seems to have followed you. Yeah, true. <laughs> it's it's kind of true. Right. And so it, it so that story comes from my brother came visited me a little bit here and there and he ended up getting a job at Whole Foods with John Mackey, had hired him on the leadership team to help develop the healthy eating program. And he was like, Derek, you know, you should, he was sending my resume around without me knowing it. And I was getting calls and I'm like, dude, what? Why? Like, like a good brother should be doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to, but I was perfectly happy. Yeah. I didn't necessarily want to leave the monastery, you know? And he's like, really, you got to come out. Dude. You, you could do a lot of good. So I ended up applying for this. He, he had applied me for one job and I ended up getting all the way up to the top um, between two people. And then I didn't get that position. But on the trip home, I stopped to see him and his new bosses. And they said, oh, this new position's opening up. You should apply for this next week. So I applied for that and I got that job. So then I was on his team and they hired me as a global health eating chef. And That's so it's a cool title. Yeah, it was a pretty cool title, right? And then that switched over after a year or so into the global chef of the company. And I wasn't vegan then. He this was. is Whole Foods USA? Yeah. 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 That's a, it's a big, it's big, a big time. Yeah. It was, it's the most, it was the most well-respected grocery, you know, all natural, mm. all organic. Really cool place to work. And what happened was Chad was vegan. I wasn't. I only cooked that way at home, but I would go out and enjoy beer and, you know, have food with everybody else. And what I saw is that nobody would listen to him because he was vegan. So all the meatheads and people who, you know, just yeah, yeah. that, they wouldn't listen to him because he had that label. And so I saw that and said, all right, I'm not going to go vegan. I'll cook that way. But you're more likely to if I'm out eating chicken and burgers with you and drinking beer and shooting the shit, but and then at work, I cook you this amazing vegan meal and say, "Hey, look, man, I've been playing with this stuff. Um, this is what it, you know. This is what I'm thinking. Oh yeah, yeah, that's good stuff, man. Wow, no meat. Wow, crazy. They are more likely to say yes to it. Than, sure, because they, I mean, they would assume that you have no agenda. Exactly, exactly. So I did that my whole time at Whole Foods. And that's how, you know, him and I tag team and things like he related to all the people who were vegan and like, yeah, he he's awesome. And then me, you know, I just related to all the people who didn't, who weren't vegan. And that's how we got a lot of stuff done. And that's how we got mo a lot of the plant-based stuff done. And that's also where we saw the whole shift. What year was this? Just to paint the picture. So... 2005. I ended there, what's this year? 2018. So I left there, I think 2015, 2016. So that it was 2009 to two. I was there six years. So. And, and so you were just about to mention, but what did you physically see and sort of have a direct involvement in terms of changing on the shelf? So bring it. So some of our friends um, 
are venture capitalists who only invest in plant-based products. So between Chad and myself, these guys would send us products from these smaller companies to try and get our thoughts and opinions on them. Like here's, they send me a five pound box of Beyond Meat before they were Beyond Burger, before they even developed the burger uh, or Field Roast or any of these really big names in the, in the U.S., and ask us to try these products or some other Kite Hill cheese, you know. Um, Which is great. Some of Miyoko's. Yeah, yeah. Some, I mean, some of these products out there, mm. we got to see them before they were ever on shelf. That's cool. And to test them and to cook them and to give our thoughts sh- to these big investor guys who, like, who wanted to know if we should invest in them. Yeah. Which, I mean, would have been harder back then than now in terms of right. where the movement was at. Right. So picking that you know, what is going to sell, what's not. Right. So we got access, behind the scenes access to all that and helped influence some of these companies and give them, you know, hey, maybe it's not ready for prime time yet, but how about doing this? This is what I would like to see in it. This is, you know, and they really took that stuff to heart. And I mean, some of these companies are huge now. Could you, could you see, were you getting access to data and could you see data changing in terms of consumer buying patterns? Yeah, the more, well, and I'll say it, I still say it all the time. People will say, oh, this, you know, this food's not going to sell. The only reason I say that is because there is no data on it. It's like it's never been sold before. So how do you know? It's the people who take that risk and Whole Foods took that risk and created this whole plant-based section and they were the best at yeah. it. They had all these alternative products that were an alternative to eating meat. You know, it also helped that John Mackey was vegan I've listened to a few of his podcasts before. Smart he's, guy, he's great. Man, smart guy. And do you think, was it, I mean, was there any data in terms of who was buying these products as they were coming in? Was this, you know, non-vegetarians who just wanted to mix it up? Yeah, so there was more and more, that started growing more and more as these people who, if you notice in the last 10 years, all of a sudden there's this gluten-free thing, this, you know, paleo came about. Just what what else is there? There's celiac, you know, all this. Intolerance. Of yeah. Diets. And so these products were solving that problem. And then the obviously no animal products, so no dairy, dairy free, you know. Mm. So it's just grew and grew and grew as those intolerance grew and grew and grew. But then also the ethical and compassionate things. So one of the things I'd used to do was go to all the factories and see all the animal products, you know, all the animal agriculture world. And that wasn't a thrilling job for me to do that even though I did it. You know, I've seen how everything's produced. I've seen 20,000 birds go in alive and come out in a package in two hours. It's mind-boggling, the factory farming way that things are done. Which unless you get in and see that for the average person just eating the end plate, it's hard to connect. It's hard. It's so hard to connect because you don't connect. So that was one, a lot of the sitting, like a lot of the stuff is, is a consequence of my experience because sitting and just being mindful and understanding, connecting the dots in my head and then seeing what I can do to prevent it and stop it. My best self is to keep cooking and provide the solution because I could stand outside all day and say, don't kill fucking animals. It's a fucking stupid. Don't be like, what are you thinking? Mm -hmm. How can you not see that they're just, they're, suffering just like us and everything else. But some people don't hear that. But they will eat an amazing plate of food 
because it tastes good. Mm. It's another option without right. you know, them having to feel like they're changing their belief system. Right. Yeah. So it's like a form of culinary activism. It's cool. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. So Whole Foods, you were there for a number of years. Yep. And what was the um, reason or rationale to leave Whole Foods? Uh, so at Whole, when I was working there, I was traveling. I averaged, I was home eight days a month. And I'd, I had met another girl and got kind of serious and ended up moving to Oregon, Portland, Oregon. And that didn't last much. That didn't last more than a year I was there. And I decided to stay there. That's a bit of a um, a vegan. Is that a bit of a yeah, vegan yeah. city? Yeah, yeah it's an amazing article. city. It's super green. It's super beautiful. I mean, it's like, have you not? I haven't been there, but I've read. Go um, it I've re- I think I was reading an article on like United States top. Yeah, that's definitely one of them. That was up there. Yeah. It's really cool as far as being a chef and being up there. I saw the chefs up there are amazing. And I got to go live next to like one of the, one of my biggest role models and chefs like Andy Ricker and like um, Gregory Godet. He, these guys ran these amazing restaurants in Portland and they're not vegan, but the flavors and the way that they're cooking and they had a lot of vegan options. I found the best vegan food was from non-vegan chefs. I don't know how it is now. I got to go back again <laughs> and try. You know, I love all the vegan, the vegan restaurants and stuff, but it's like when these guys can turn and use their skills to just plants, it's like mind-blowing. To your point, and I've been thinking about that, is it the ability to sort of match the texture is that a, is that a yeah. big component of it i think it's one component, one component. Of it, you know so it's like all i do is take how my whatever i learned and just there's no i just there's no way i don't even consider using animals it's just not even a part of it and i didn't go from meat eating to vegetarian to vegan i went from meat eating to vegan done it just happened. And one day I said, you know what? There's no reason why I'm doing this anymore. So when I left Whole Foods was when I did that. I said, there, there was no reason for me to be a non-vegan anymore. Especially when you're armed with the skills to, right. to cook some of the world's best right. vegan dishes. Well, I guess so. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I just said, you know, that as soon as I left Whole Foods, I went vegan. Um, I didn't announce it or nothing. It's just like I decided I'd, I was done. So... I just, so that I had a year off. Um, I did another 30 day silent retreat. I went right at, like, so I think I ended in February. The monastery I went to again, it was March to April. So I took a month off, went to did a 30 day silent retreat. And then when I got out of that, that's when Tesco called. And so then we started talking and it took about two years to get over here. And that's now I've been here a little over a year since I think it was April of last year I moved over here. And what's what's your sort of formal role at Tesco? So my role now is a chef director of plant-based innovation for Tesco. And the Wicked Healthy brand, yep. which you started with your brother and was it one? Is it one other? It's just, no, just, just me and my brother. Just you and your brother. Yeah. So you, was that sort of coinciding with the starting at Tesco? No. So we've had Wicked Healthy and we started Wicked Healthy in our mind before Whole Foods. And then at Whole Foods, how Wicked Healthy really started forming is we worked with all the doctors who, you know, Forks Over Knives doctors, the Engine 2 doctors, 
Dr. You know, I can't name them all, but Esselstyn, Furman, Campbell. All the big guys. All the big guys. Yeah. Um, there was a dozen of them and they were on the board of advisors for Whole Foods and Chad ran that board. That's incredible. I didn't know that they had that board yeah. set up with those guys. Which are, we did like, all pioneers. kinds of immersions. So there were so many... I mean, this, I don't know how long you want this podcast to go, but there are so we, many. We can just keep flowing. There are so many immersions. Like we had to do, I think we did them twice a year, but there was four different staffs, four different ones, four different doctors. So I attended every one of them and catered for a lot of them and did demos for all of them and did this talk about how I did got to be healthier through it. And we learned, so I went from cooking meats to the monastery to learn how to do vegetarian and vegan foods to going extreme, no oil, no sugar, right? What else is there? No fat. Yeah. No added fats, no sugar and no uh, salt, like minimal sodium. Yeah. So, and that's how, so we actually have another book coming out this fall, the Whole Foods Market Diet Cookbook. So Chad and I wrote that with John Mackey and um, Matt and Alona. So they, that comes out this fall. Amazing. Yeah, 2018. Another book coming. And a lot of people don't know that yet. It's probably the first time. There we it. go. <laughs> so you heard it first here on yeah, the yeah. <laughs> podcast, guys. So you you jumped on board Tesco mm-hmm. and you're in this uh, product innovation mm-hmm. style position. Mm-hmm. So are you um, developing products underneath the Tesco brand? Is that the idea? Or? So uh, my job is two five. I work with Tesco. As their director of plant-based innovation, and what that entails is like me corralling as many of the vegan and plant-based products um, to introduce them to Tesco, and then also figure out with them which ones we want to sell on shelf. And to ideally, I want to make them the best plant-based retailer because they had the hindsight or foresight, however you say that, to find me, hire me to help them do this. Whereas I see all the other retailers with a bunch of board members sitting around a table saying, vegan's a trend. Follow it. Follow it. Figure it out. Do it. You know, just like assigning the guys who are already doing the job instead of hiring out specialists. They're just whipping up quinoa burgers and Mm. this and that that I don't care about. I just don't want to eat that stuff. Yeah. No, it's, I won't it's never going to have the same creative flair or no, you know, love into the meals and no. recipes. I don't like. I come with the attitude, and te- and Tesco knows this. I, I'm not out to make vegans more vegan. I want to make help meat eaters and people who want to reduce their meat intake to eat more plants mm. and just make fucking plants sexy as fuck as they are. They're so like. I love eating vegetables. I love eating. Like I made all this food for us to eat. You know, I just want to cook. And it's, to me, it's like a no brainer. It's just like, dude, there's so much to cook. There's so many more vegetables than there are animals. There's so much we could do with them and so many flavors and textures. And it's just incredible to me. So it's, I mean, to your point about it being sexy, it's breaking down the whole, you know, masculinity argument about masculinity being eating meat versus what was it? more masculine to have a higher level of compassion. Yeah, oh, I believe that. But. So, mm. something to think about. Okay, so that 
So you're saying in terms of the UK market mm-hmm. and new products in the market coming to Tesco, are you seeing a whole lot of new exciting stuff popping yes. up? I see a whole lot of new and exciting stuff and I see a whole lot of competition start to form. Which is great. Which is great. And I was, you know, in a lot of newspaper news articles and stuff like this, I was challenging the other retailers and I still challenge them because ideally I'm in it for the mission. I love my job and I love Tesco and I have so much respect for that team there and the leadership team there and the resources they provide me to do this job. But I also want to, I'm going to call out all the other retailers to get their shit together and step to the plate. Like I'm not showing my cards, but you come to the table and play with me. Like let's bring it, you know, and that is only going to make the world a better place. That's right. It's just going to create a much bigger market. And it's starting to happen. And the competition's healthy. Yeah, it is. It's it's super healthy. Especially I think, you know, common thing for anyone who is transitioning um, who may not have looked into things a lot, they assume that the vegan plant-based grocery bill at the end is going mm-hmm. to be a lot higher. Mm-hmm. Do you see that changing with more competition coming in do you, or you know, more volume and manufacturers? No, it's going to get lower. It, yeah? In the beginning, it's because the, because the food industry is set up the way it is right now, it's kind of messed up where it's built around animal ag- agriculture. It's not built to process a ton of vegetables, like bring a veg center plate. It's just not, it hasn't been. Some unique companies who set up that way and they're all plant-based, you know, they're, they're not that old. You know, even like some of the bigger ones, they're all, you know, I think vegetarian is a gray area. You don't go in it. You're either selling meat and dairy and eggs and that stuff or you're vegan. So there's so much room and all I see is opportunities. So when I first came over here, there was nothing to eat in the stores. I don't know how it is in Australia. I haven't been to see the retail. I'm looking forward to go. Maybe we can hang out when I come there. <laughs> come and come and stay with me in Bondi. And That'd be awesome. I can show you around. The retailers, right? You go in there. If I'm hungry, there was nothing to eat when I first came over here. And I'm not going to eat a salad. Like, and some, most of the salads have freaking eggs and like then the dressing. Yeah, v- that's the crazy thing. It. It's no. just stupid. I was here for, I think, six months in 2012. And I remember just, there's just no options. Nothing. Mark and Spencer, I think at the time, was mm. probably all I could go to to get some quick, quick, easy food, like yeah. healthy food. Right. Yeah. And that's an apple. Yeah. Or bananas, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or bananas, however you would say. Yeah. Right bananas. Yeah. <laughs> so when I came over here, there was literally a falafel wrap. And that in- includes Tesco and includes Marks and Spencer's and Sainsbury and Waitress, like all of them. Nothing. So, we, you know, my, the other job I have is our brand Wicked Kitchen. The only reason why it's not called Wicked Healthy here in the UK is because we don't, we can't put healthy on a package. So, and it's funny too, because I'm just like, dude, it's wicked healthy. It's like a, opposing forces. Yeah. You know, it's all in one. It's, it's the battle between, it's a conflict within me and Chad. So it's like, we named it Wicked Kitchen here. That's the brand name and that's on shelf. So we launched with 20 ready meal items, uh, sandwiches, wraps, ready meals, pizzas. Sourdough pizzas. Are Sourdough pizzas. Delicious. Yep. Made from like, based off of the recipe in the book. And they, they're in all, every Tesco? They're in almost every Tesco. So Tesco, I think 
There's over 2,500 of them. That's a, there's wow. quite a lot of them. So many. So, so, so accessible. We launched in 600 stores, but I know like the success. So in 20 weeks, we've doubled projections and we've sold 2.5 million units. So however you want to think of that, whether it's not like people who are eating two and a half million meals that people are eating, they're not eating animals. I don't know how many animals that saves or if it saves any at all, but they're not eating animals. That makes me feel good. And to to our conversation a little bit earlier, okay, that makes me feel good. I'm super proud. Move on. There's a hell of a lot more work to do. Like a lot more work to do. Well, yeah, the, um, I mean, the UK market in terms of plant-based eating Mm-hmm. is one of the more mature in the whole world, right? It's thriving. It's starting, right, right, it's starting. I would love to say it's like because we're challenging them and bringing it, like, and we want, by making Tesco the best, it challenges everybody across the world because all retailers see what everybody else is doing and they're the third largest in the world. So it's a really good position to influence the betterment of retail market in the vegan area, you know, and the change, I cannot even describe the change before we launched there was a lot of naysaying like ah it's not gonna work ah no 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 when we launched and then the success of it everybody now sees that it's it's a way to go within the organization yeah and they want more brands they want more plant-based so to get to put more brands in does that mean they're having to cut into the shelf space of animal products that you know i'm not I don't know how that all works, whether it's, it has to, you know, if people are buying our products, it's some, they're not buying something else. Something's got to give. But they also could be coming in from other stores, you know, and driving new business into the store. You know, one of the reasons why I feel like Wiki Kitchen is successful is because there's a name and a face and I can talk to you behind that brand. It's not a, it's not a retail own label. And there's no, there's no face behind old labels. You know, it's the, it's the corporation. Like I care about what we put in that food. Um, I try to make it so everybody likes it. There's still some people who are like, oh, it's not, it's too expensive or, oh, there's this and this and whatever, whatever. Like, man, I'm out there and I'm trying to do the best we possibly can within the system that is set up until we can change that system. It's like takes little measures of trying to change it, you know. And um, in terms of, you know, on what's on the horizon, I guess, short term and mm. medium term, where do you see this market going in the UK? Up. And in terms more. of product development, is there it's like specific areas that you think are going to flourish? Yeah, you know, but I'm not going to give away too much of that because I will tell you that we have another launch coming up. And then we have another one coming up. And then we have another one coming up. That's this year. So if, if um, folks want to get mm. their eyes peeled, they just need to mm. keep an eye on Wicked Healthy yeah. um, Instagram page. Yep. And Tesco. And Tesco, yeah. Tesco. So yeah. two and a half thousand stores. If you're, um, if, you're in, yeah. if you're in the UK, then... Yeah. And they're in other countries too. Other countries. Yeah, well, Tesco's in, I think they're the biggest store in... Thailand, I believe they're in a lot of other stores in Europe. I'm not, I'm, I'm not positive. So your products making it? Are they being exported as well? They're in Ireland. Okay, cool. Um, they're not, they're not in any other countries other than the Ireland and UK at the moment. So it's working on. We're, we're working on it. I'm working on all the things. And we're definitely coming to the end of this podcast, mm-hmm. and 
I think with everything that you're doing, um, we're the busiest chef in plant-based cooking that I've met. We'll um, have to do a follow-up episode at some stage. Just so maybe in over. Australia, please. We'll do that one in Australia. Yeah, I'd fun. love that. <laughs> um, couple, couple last questions just to um, finish off. Um, number one, London uh, vegan food. What would you recommend? I'm here for five days. Oh, yeah. Where would right you on, recommend man. that I um, check out? Dude, so July 5th, you're here. Uh, maybe leaving that night, but I might be leaving on the sixth. So okay, so vegan nights is they do a vegan nights thing uh, once a month here down at the boiler room. Um, they also have every Saturday. There's lots of festivals if you're here on a Saturday. Um, if not, I would definitely go check out like Cook Daily. It's one of my favorite. The chef over there, King, he's amazing. I would check out what the pita. I would check out. Picky Wops, I would check out. Picky Wops, is that pizza? Pizza, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. Check out those guys. They're awesome. They're hilarious. They're just good guys and they're great food. Um, Temple of Satan, if you're into like some vegan. I've seen that too. looks like chicken. Yeah, yeah. It's a fried chicken. It's it's freaking amazing. I can't eat it more than once a week, but it's freaking amazing. And I would, yeah, I would eat all if I could. I'll check it out (laughs) for the experience. Um, I would definitely check out our range in the stores. Hundred percent. Selfless plug right there. I would. I would have. Um. I would have gone in today. Hmm. I've come straight. You just came airport, straight here, <laughs> straight from the airport. So, um, and found myself in a bit of a car park on the freeway. So. Yeah, right on, man. Right on. Okay, there's a, a few places that I need to check out there. Yeah. Um. Finally, your book. Hmm. So wicked healthy. Wicked Good healthy. Book. What's What's it all about? Why? You know. Why? What inspired you to bring that out? And why would why would someone benefit from having that on their so kitchen? That book is all about plant pushing and not meat shaming. So we don't mention the word vegan in the book. We call it out as free from animals. Um, just leaving animals off the plate, man. We're, we're teaching compassion on a plate. And it's just comfort food, sexy food. It's dude food. It's number one in barbecue and burgers and sandwiches back in the States. It's doing really well here. You know, and to be honest with you, I haven't followed how well it's doing at all because it's like it took us three years to write that and just do the photography um, with Eva Cosmos doing the photography on it, which is just, we're super proud of it, but there's more to do. Like, it's just like, all right, good, get it, let's go. Let's and did, did you use a publisher for that? Or you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Grand Central Publishing in the States and here it's Little Brown in the UK. Awesome. It's a really good, uh, you know, we're super proud. It, it focuses on technique. It's not necessarily about the recipe. It's about the technique and the process. So if you can learn, it's kind of like that old adage, if you can teach a man how to fish yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than just cook, cook a fish. But I'm sorry about saying that, but that's what it is. It's teaching you the process and how to like just apply different techniques. And finally, we, we um, digress from early on when you were talking about growing up and enjoying mm-hmm. barbecues. Mm-hmm. Now your take on the barbecue um, using plant-based foods, what, what does that look like and how do you bring that to life? So I use mushrooms. I'm really I've kind of mushrooms are my jam and I'm becoming well known for the mushroom mission. You know, there's some really exciting things we'll announce in the next couple of months of some new endeavors um, me and my brother are doing that will include this barbecue little okay. theme. So. We're kind of serial entrepreneurs who just want to really help the animals and people be healthier. 
Well, mate, I would um, firstly like to thank you for having me mm. into your home and looking forward to trying some of the food that you've prepared today. Thanks, man. Um, and yeah, I just thank you for, I guess, choosing compassion above mm. all else. You too. You're a superstar. Yeah, and no, uh, I look forward to, to seeing where um, everything goes from here in terms of your journey. Yeah, thanks very much. And uh, while I have you in the house, I'm going to pick your brain about bodybuilding stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we can do that. I'm, uh, I'm not sure I'm as across everything as Nimai uh, Delgado, but... No, no, um, Nimai was here a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best to um, point you in the right direction. Awesome, man. Cheers, mate. Appreciate it. Wow. What what an episode that was and, you know, some, some amazing take-home learnings for all of us and I just have so much admiration for this guy to, to to have the strength to share that, to cope with it, and to to propel himself to build this business which is built on compassion. It's it's next level, and you know I know that you guys are going to probably want to connect with Derek and follow his journey from here. So you can do that by heading over to Instagram, the brand Wicked Healthy, which is Derek and Chad's business is at Wicked Healthy. Derek's Instagram is at Derek Sano and his brother Chad's Instagram is at Chad Sano. Thank you for listening to this episode.